0: It's your boy, and welcome to episode 86 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcasts available now at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can find the latest episode posted there with the video embedded. You can watch it there on our website or click through, watch it on YouTube, and subscribe. Uh, hot as shit out here in the Bay Area. I, you know, I only look at myself for like two seconds when I frame the video and then I don't fucking look at it at all because otherwise it'd be too distracting. But um, I feel like I have this sheen going on because I think I'm just like, well, stewing in my own juices, I would say, but also just glistening from the heat. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm home all day and I'm just kind of sitting on my ass and like staring at the computer because that's what most of us are doing these days, whether it's school or work or even just hanging out, most of our lives are just in the computer. And since I have to work remotely for when I work and since all of my schoolwork is online currently, um, when I'm at home and I just spend the majority of my day here just kind of seated in my chair just kind of stewing in my own juices. By the end of the day, even if I haven't moved, I just feel disgusting. And since I normally uh, record these in the evening, it's Sunday evening now, and I've spent the majority of the day just doing homework, uh, kind of preparing fi- uh, preparing for finals, uh, I'm kind of at that point where I feel like I just need a silkwood shower and uh, a reset. So uh, not as well groomed. Well, I guess that's sort of part for the course. Normally I sort of groom and then like, I look pretty well coiffed for the episode and then like two weeks goes by and I haven't groomed. And then I think, wow, I really should have, uh, cleaned up for this episode. So, um, but we'll see, actually, I guess it's sort of fitting. I guess next weekend I will, uh, try to groom myself for the video podcast. Uh, this is my last week, uh, of school. Well, sorry, I'm sort of talking in circles here, but, um, I guess practically this will be my last, week of school at, um, the junior college I've been at for two years before I transferred to a UC. Um, but technically, actually my time starting at UCI, I enrolled in uh, intensive Chinese this summer, which begins on the 24th. I, technically I'm still in finals week for uh, my other courses, but, um, I think if I work hard this week, I can actually finish all of my requirements for my other school so that I can actually be free, um... <laughs> to start doing Chinese for eight hours a day Which is what they're telling me I have to prepare myself for They're saying it's three hours of lecture Plus uh, we're expected to uh, You know We're expected to do five hours of homework a night So <sighs> um, So it'll be out of the frying pan Into the fire This has been the hardest semester of school that I've had And um, it's I was going to say it's not because the courses are so very difficult Although <laughs> They kind of have been It's, um, it's probably a confluence of the coursework and also just my mentality. I'm just kind of, I have, I know I'm not a senior yet, but I have something like senioritis, which is I'm just ready to be done, I think. So, um, yeah. So basically I have a three part ASL final, American Sign Language. The first part is tomorrow, um, which is just sort of a comprehensive exam over the semester. Uh, I think we watch a video po- uh, component and we just have to basically translate it into a text document and submit that. The second part is a uh, interview where I think we're kind of given like nine prompts from uh conversational prompts from across the semester and we have to prepare all of them and we'll just, you know, have an interview with the instructor and uh, just they'll begin engaging us in a conversation. That's one of these prompts and we just have to be fluent in it. So Uh, that's a little more difficult. And then the other part is we actually have to prepare our own story, a three minute story from our childhood, which I'll do here on the podcast eventually when it's uh, finished. Um, but, uh, well, I'm wondering if I should tell the story now, actually I will, I will tell the story, but basically we have to prepare the story, um, um, and just do it in sign language. Uh, so a three part final. Um, I also have a comprehensive calculus final next Sunday. So my goal is to kind of get that done halfway through the day so that I can be available to the podcast. But look, if, I, if I'm if i not here next week, it's because I'm doing a calculus final, okay? I'm, I'm hoping I can use my time this week well and, and be prepared enough to just get it out of the way uh, midday on Sunday. But if I really feel like I need the time, I'm obviously going to take it. Uh, it's important to me that I finish strong this semester. And so if I feel like I need the time, and it that means not doing the podcast, that's what it'll be um hopefully that means that sometime and later in the week, I'll be able to do it so it still gets posted rather than waiting a whole week like I did last time. but uh look, it is what it is okay and i'm I'm juggling a lot of things and you know I know some of you enjoy the podcast, and so I'd like to to have it available for you, but you know, I guess uh school and other things take precedent for the time being, so thank you for understanding. Um, I guess finally for psychology, uh, concurrently, we have a final paper and a group project that are due within two days of each other. So the final paper is due on Tuesday uh, and the group project is due on Thursday. So, um, pretty nuts, a lot of stuff going on. Um, but that's okay. I've been working pretty hard, so I think I'll be able to get most of it done and, uh, my final paper is pretty much almost finished and, uh, I've completed my portion of the group project for the most part. I have to record like a, you know, a two minute uh, video presentation, uh, that'll get sewn in with the others to create a cumulative video presentation, but, um, it should be pretty simple. Um, here, I'll tell you the story actually that I'm doing for sign language. And then, um, uh, on the next video podcast, I'll, uh, I'll actually perform it, um, but it's uh, we had to tell a story from our childhood, and uh, I got to say, I was pretty underwhelmed with the other stories that other people were telling, but the point is, is that you have to have some kind of, uh, you know, kind of a lesson learned, you know, some type of experience that taught you a lesson. And so, the first thing that jumped to my mind, and thankfully, I think there's enough vocabulary here that I know that I could actually tell the story, but when me and my brother were, in the story I say about six years old, I don't know how old we were, honestly, We could have been like four or or five, but we were at the mall. We were living in Cincinnati at the time and we were at a mall called the, it was called the Kenwood Mall. And, um, and again, when I tell the story, it's around Christmas, but I I actually don't know what time of year it was, but we were at the mall. And, uh, at one point our mother says that she has to use the bathroom and we were too young to be left on our own. So I'm I hope this doesn't sound strange. I assume your childhood was the same. But when our mother went to the bathroom, we had to go with her and we would like stand in the stall with her because she can't leave her children alone. And uh, I think that's pretty normal. I I see like, you know, fathers will take their young daughters into the men's room if they, if they must. Um, and I remember even with my dad, like being in the stall with my dad, he just couldn't leave his young children alone. So, um, we go to the restroom and I don't know how it happened, but at some point me and my brother decide that we're going to go to the men's room and, you know, if we normally go with our mother, I don't know why we had this great idea that we would go to the, me- the, the men's room. But the last memory I have is following my mom to the restroom. And I see her in my mind's eye. Now I can still see her like pushing the women's restroom door open and going in and me and my brother just continuing on to the, um, to the men's room. And we do our business. Presumably we wash our hands and probably three or four minutes later, we come out of the bathroom. And like most malls, the bathrooms are inset in this long hallway um and as we're coming out of the hallway, kind of perfectly framed uh in the hallway exit back into the sort of um you know the main area of the mall slash food court, whatever it was, I see my mother speaking frantically with a police officer. And uh she's kind of looking around wildly, and I didn't really know what was going on, but I remember as soon as she like looks and sees us, there's just this huge sigh of relief. And, um, you know, I don't remember much after that, but I do just remember, you know, it just stuck in my mind so vividly because I had no idea the impact that that choice that we had made had on our mom. And um, when I think back on it, actually, it's one of the most parental moments I have in my childhood. Like, I don't have a lot of memories where my mom or my dad strike me as being very parental. Um, and maybe that sounds strange, but, you know, it's, it's one of the few memories I have, and, and and maybe when it comes to my mother, the only one I have where she was, like, frantically concerned for us. And, yeah, it just feels exceptional in my life. Um I also remember feeling very bad <laughs> about it. I don't know what the rest of the day was like. I don't know. I don't know if we went home at that time. I don't know if we were chastised. I don't know if we were yelled at. I don't know what the outcome of that was. I'll have to ask my brother about it, but um that's always been an exceptional memory for me. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a lot of other things that come to mind right now. I just I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't even say this on the podcast, but I I don't know if they're appropriate, but um You know what, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, there's a part of me that just thought, oh, you should stop recording the podcast right now and uh, record this next week. You know, having a week off from doing the podcast, it felt a bit like having a garden hose where you sort of pinch it off and then you just kind of let it go. <laughs> you know, I, I really felt last week that I was able to talk wall to wall and just kind of go, bah, 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 which is like my favorite way of doing the podcast. And I uh, actually heard from a friend of mine that, hey, man, that was a really good episode. And I was like, thank you. And, uh, I think I kind of needed to hear that because one, I felt bad about not doing the podcast, uh, the weekend before. Um, and also as we're wrapping up here, as we're swiftly approaching 100 episodes, I'm really not sure how to move forward or if I want to, honestly. Um, I've talked about this, so I'm not going to talk through my entire thought process, but you know, there's a, and I don't think I've said this actually, but I think there's a part of me that just kind of wants to like not create something for a while. Um, The truth is, since Shelter in Place and since, you know, returning to school, I don't think in, I, I, I I don't think, my mind doesn't work the same way that it used to. And I think that's been coming on for a while now. But I don't think in terms of music anymore. You know, I don't have a single creative outlet that my experiences and my sort of you know, for most of my life, I've always had like a creative outlet, whether it was um, theater or music, but there was just a lens that I saw the world through. And, you know, when I was doing music primarily, I would just go through my life and think of things. And anytime a turn of phrase came to mind or something that was a potential lyric, I would like really sit with it and like protect it. And like, as soon as I had a chance, I would write it down. And I had these notebooks that I would just fill, like, very quickly with ideas and as I would work through songs. And I remember, like, I I would record little snippets into my phone and I just had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these song ideas. And there was never enough time, you know, to write all these songs, which I think is fine. Uh, I used to kind of beat myself up about it that i wasn 't more prolific because I felt like there were so many good song ideas that were just not getting finished, but I actually heard Stephen King talking about this recently, which actually made a lot of sense to me i didn 't think this way <laughs> when I was really going through this, but as an adult i think oh that 's that 's actually probably a good way to see things, but you know he he tells young writers like having a sketchbook or an idea book is the best way to to um, um, Uh, memorialize or, or to, to, uh, keep for posterity a ton of bad ideas. You know, I'm not sure I'm wording that correctly, but I think you know what I mean. Um, that is a great way to immortalize bad ideas. That's the way to say it. Whereas really the creative mind is like a, like a, like a sieve, right? And all the bad shit just kind of disappears. And the the really good stuff actually just kind of stays. Um, the stuff that you continue to think about that you couldn't forget even if you tried, those are probably the things you really should be giving your creative time to. And maybe it's a little different with songs because actually, you know, I don't know. I think Leonard Cohen said it took like eight years to write Hallelujah, which is fine. But for most of us, songs don't take that long. You know, uh, even for me, songs took a long time for me to write. Even if I was giving like, you know, sometimes an hour or two hours a day concerted effort to songwriting, a song would still take, hmm, it could take like at least two to four weeks to write, you know? So by the time it was actually finished, it probably took, you know, 40 to 60 hours to write a song and pages and pages and pages in my, uh, in my lyric book, uh, just kind of orbiting these ideas. And out of a whole day, usually no matter how much I tried a good day of writing, I would get one couplet was, and, and sometimes it wouldn't even be kept in the song. But that's what I got out of a days where the work was like one couplet in the verse. So if a verse is like two couplets or part A of a verse is two couplets, it takes a long time. And uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is is as I was working on songs, I would always record each part of it and I would go through my life. And as I walked to work, I would listen to these half finished songs. I would just sort of be marinating in them and, and thinking about them. And as I would go through my life, I would... You know, I would just have some part of a song that I would just be turning over and trying to to work at and find the perfect phrase for. And um, you know, sometimes these things get solved when you're kind of out and about and you get so excited and so I would you know, into my phone or something I would record the solution, you know, whatever lyric I had come to or whatever it was. And I couldn't wait to get home to sort of put it in the notebook. And uh or and sometimes these things get solved over in the notebook itself, but um you know, that was like how I, what I, that was the lens I filtered the world through. Every experience I had, whether it was romantic or personal, I was like a sponge. And as I was sort of experiencing the world, you know, whatever, you know, this sounds super pretentious, but whatever truths I was arriving at or whatever, you know, whatever I was learning or whatever seemed valuable was material for a song. You know, any meaningful experience I had was like never fully I was never really finished with it until I had written a song about it. And you're not even you're not you know, you're not always you're not always aware of it at the time too. I mean sometimes you're going through your life, you know, and you feel like you're just kind of feeling your way forward in the dark and you write these songs and like five years will go by and you'll still feel like you're sort of mulling over. About this experience in your life, and you'll go back and listen to some older songs, and be like, "Oh, actually, I understood fully what was going on at that time." You know, you arrive at these truths in in therapy, and you think, "Man, it really took me a long time to understand myself or to understand what I was going through." And then you actually listen back to the songs you were writing at that time, and you think, "Oh, damn, I feel like I had just as much, if not more, insight about that situation as it was happening. It felt like I was fucking lost." But in some ways, you're actually, I don't know you're more doubt into it. Um, but all that just to say, I don't think that way anymore. Um, at least it's not music. <laughs> you know, I just don't think in terms of song songs anymore. I have a guitar but I just don't, I have not picked it up in, not in earnest. I haven't picked up in earnest in probably two years, which is strange. You know, and there's a big should of like, oh, I should pick it up. Oh, I, of course, there's tons of unfinished songs that I should finish, but I don't feel like I'm there anymore. I mean, I've alluded to this larger creative project that I've sort of been scared <laughs> to do. Um... And in a weird way that's kind of the thing that I carry with me and it's not music and it's not entirely theater. It's a couple things, but um it's a couple of the th- it's actually a couple of those things that sort of come in together in a single thing, but um that's kind of like how I experience the world now or that's the creative thing that's in the back of my mind when I think about books that I've read, when I think about classes that I've taken, classes that I want to take, you know. There's a part of me that is picturing this sort of greater work Uh, in the background of my mind. And yet, I think there's a part of me that's also resigned that I'll never create it. (laughs) It'll never be realized. It's just too crazy. You know, it's something I should have done when I was younger, honestly. Um, It's something I should have done when I had the idea. And now I feel like too much time has gone by. I mean, I've been sitting on this idea for like six years and I've I've, start, I've tried to work at it a couple of times and it just never felt right. So there's a part of me that's hoping... You know, it's kind of funny, actually. When I... <laughs> this is when I start to sound like spooky, weird stuff, but when I actually think about when I was first thinking about this creative project and I was very much into the I Ching at the time, I remember consulting the I Ching about this. And I would sort of consult the I Ching like... There was a period where I did it every day and then it became a little more scattered. But there would be times where I, in a private moment where more than just like, Oh, let's see what the I Ching has to say. And then maybe I'll just carry whatever this reading is around with me and see if anything comes of it. There would be times where like from the depths of my being, I would like consult the I Ching. And I want to qualify that because I remember one time talking about this in therapy where I was saying, you know, I feel really silly because I feel like here I am interacting with this book, this ancient Chinese book of divination philosophy. Here I am really interacting with it in seriousness, and I feel like that's fucking nuts. And my therapist asked me, "Well, let's let's talk through this. I mean, do you see yourself like if the I Ching told you if you if you felt like the I Ching told you to do something that didn't make a lot of sense to you, would you do it?" And I was like, "Probably not." She goes, "Well, there you go." And I don't think this is what she was saying, but what I inferred from that was like at the end of the day, you're the one who's making the decisions. You know, you're you know, like many people who read religious texts, you're sort of cherry picking what makes sense. You're not remembering as or how do I say it, you're not holding on to as strongly the times where whatever the reading is doesn't really jive with your sense of the truth. Like when these when the planets align and the I Ching happens to say something or seem to say something very meaningful about something that you happen to want for yourself, you have this wash of permission, or whatever it is. It feels like this cosmic aligning, right, where the I Ching is telling you something very important. But there's many times when you really think about it, that the I Ching will sort of spit something at you that is sort of nonsensical, or makes no sense. Or sometimes you actually consult the I Ching in a quasi-serious sense, and you don't get the response that you want, and it just only is kind of dead, you know? And you sort of think, oh, well, there must be something wrong with this, or uh, or oh, this silly book is full of, full of nonsense, right? can't take that seriously. You devalue, you know, what the e has to say in that moment. I do remember one time, God, I sounds so emo. I was probably high at the time, but I do remember saying like in earnest, I was like, you know, I know I had been sitting on this creative project for a long time and I hadn't started because it felt silly and it felt too big and it felt overwhelming. And, um, I was kind of in this sort of never ending story type dialogue with myself where I was like, Oh, you have to keep your feet on the ground. You got to, you know, whatever. And I remember consulting the I Ching in earnest and saying like, tell me what to do. Tell me what I should do. And I remember I, you know, I cast the coins or whatever it was. And the I Ching said something like, you know, 10 years, you know, right now it doesn't make sense. Like the Fox, like, cross, you know, does not cross the, the water or whatever the fucking image is. Um, but it said 10 years. And I was like, okay, okay. 10 years. Now, at the time, that felt fucking insane. Um, but I wonder, I wonder when those 10 years is up. Yeah. I mean, I guess I look at everything I'm doing now, and even my life in general, and there's a part of me, I go through my life and I think of this creative project, and I think <laughs> it's almost like a religion. You know, it is kind of, it's like, it's a, it's a form of meaning making in my life. And I know I sound silly, not actually telling you what it is or really talking about it, but suffice it to say, I carry this idea with me that in some ways, everything I've ever experienced, everything I've ever read, everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever felt, every book I've ever read, every movie I've ever watched, to me has led up to this moment of inspiration where I thought of this creative project. Which, if it were ever created, would be, you know, the way I think about it today would be the only, like, truly meaningful creative statement I've ever made. And maybe the type of thing, you know, we've talked about this in terms of um, war and peace, or we've talked about this in a number of things. In some ways, this has been kind of one thread that's been woven through the entire podcast, which is. You know, I I think the most recent thing for me was uh, In and of Itself, right? Um, Is it Derek Delgadio? I forget his name. The the, the sort of uh, mentalist, illusionist. uh, His show is on Hulu, which I actually canceled my Hulu subscription, so I can't rewatch it. But check it out if you haven't seen it, In and of Itself. And when I watch that, um, in some ways, it sort of, in many ways, is something adjacent to what this creative project I've been thinking of. But You know, when I watch that, I genuinely believe, and this is where I sound a little nuts, but I genuinely believe that that piece of performance art or theater or magic or whatever you want to call it is in another installation into this sort of conversation that's happening, a, a creative conversation that is happening through time that I feel is genuinely happening. And I don't mean this in kind of a woo-woo sense. I just mean, you know, we all have moments where we're reading something of antiquity and it feels like it was written for us. And we, we feel, I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but I kind of mean it. We very literally feel a hand reaching through time and touching us. And all of a sudden... we're kind of reminded of what's important what's important in life, you know? Of course, paying your taxes and all these sorts of things and, and uh, making sure your bills are paid are all important in a practical sense, but we're reminded that we are a part of something much greater and more mysterious than we're ever really aware of as we go through our lives. And we're reminded that if our lives are actually going to be meaningful, we have to contribute to this in some way. And it doesn't mean that we earn our fame and fortune through it. But there is that sense that, you know, to have a meaningful life, we have to somehow create something for the people after this that will remind them what is important as well. I mean, I think these are ideas that I started to form when I was really getting into Confucianism or reading Chinese philosophy, which I think as it actually plays out in society has actually become this sort of like a type of conservatism um and i i will probably learn more about this as i study more about chinese but even in chinese culture i mean it, it's the type of thinking that can actually be used to control people <laughs> in a very negative way but when you think about why does confucius stress ritual you know and social roles and i there was you know in my own mind as i sort of th- thought through this when i was reading about it for the first time it sort of made sense of my interest in religion through most of my life which is you know there seems to be this enduring struggle in our lives between what is important and what is not, and the trouble is most people can live their lives thinking they 're doing the right thing when really they 're of the world they're they 're sort of pursuing these secular values but if you really think about it, i mean I, this kind of in some ways this kind of goes back to my you know, most people read the Bible and they always see themselves as Jesus or the persecuted Jews. They don't see themselves as the Pharisees. They don't see themselves as the Pharaoh. But the reason that these stories are so important, not that they're actually true or that the metaphysical claims that they make are true, but the reason that they have been carried through time is because they articulate a drama that we all experience in our lives. And I think that they are partly constructed this way. I think this is also just a product of how we're structured, like psychologically, biologically. Um, In some ways, we're not able to, in our living experience, understand the world that we live in. But I think through art are able to articulate it um, almost in a clearer way through metaphor, through... um, you know, certain images we're able to articulate this sort of drama that we're all living out. That we, for whatever reason, we can't articulate clearly. It's it's so effervescent. We have snatches and moments where we see it clearly, but for the most part, we kind of live our life drugged, <laughs> drinking the Kool Aid, where we go through our life and we think we're doing the right thing. We we think we see ourselves as upstanding members of society, who are doing the right thing, who are trying our best. Um but a lot of what we're actually doing is living up to like the secular standard of what success and rightness is. And I think the reason that people like the Buddha, like Jesus, again, not the metaphysical claims they make, not I am the son of God, and I was crucified, and I was resurrected. I mean, th- those themselves are just allegories to talk about other things as well. But I just mean... You know, the people that we value are people who ask us to have the courage to pursue and do the thing that sounds silly or scary, you know, that other people would look at not not practical, Yeah. Not practical. And it just is the case that somebody like Jesus, not, you know, I'm not talking about the historical Jesus. I'm, I'm talking about the fictional Jesus that exists in the Gospels. But someone who lives their life that way gets crucified. You know, and I'm, I'm not talking about actual political martyrs. I just mean, you know, the story of the Jews, and I don't mean in the anti-Semitic way that people talk about the Jews killing Jesus. I just mean the Jews of the Bible and the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate, etc. Um, these are people of the world. You know, Pontius Pilate tried to make a very considered political decision in having Jesus Christ crucified. You also have people who wanted him dead, who thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were upholding the values of their religion by advocating for his crucifixion. When really this person was possessed of, uh, of the truth. <laughs> and it was his sacrifice that didn't make sense to the, it didn't make sense to most of the people who were alive around him. But that message reaches the people it's meant to. And that's what I mean. So forget I'm talking about religion (laughs) and pretend I'm talking about what it means to live a meaningful life, which is most of the things that will be worthwhile, I think most people will not understand, will seem silly, and they'll be difficult, and the people who pursue them will be misunderstood, but it makes sense to the people it needs to make sense to. And so I think, especially as an artist, this is your duty. (laughs) And believe me, I'm living in dereliction of duty. You know, we talk about getting hit with the spirit or betraying the muse. There's an episode somewhere in this podcast called Betraying the Muse. I've been living in dereliction of duty for a long time. I've tried to do the right thing. I think even me embarking on this entire podcast in and of itself, (laughs) ironically, no pun intended or whatever the phrase may be embarking on this podcast was sort of a um, has been a sort of weak attempt at summoning the courage to do the thing that I really want to do I don't know that I ever will if I'm being honest there's a part of me that worries that the window has been closed on that opportunity but But when I think about living my life and at the end of my life, what what will I value? What will have felt important? There's a part of me that knows that if I don't do that, I mean, when I really think about what would a meaningful life mean to me, it would mean eventually creating that thing. And I haven't done it. It's not having kids (laughs) <laughs> it's not getting married. That's the thing I think about. And maybe that, you know, maybe I'll be disabused of that at some point. If I have enough therapy and I talk about this enough, I'll be disabused of that. You know, there could be some way where, you know, on some level, I'm just this fucked up person and I have the pathology of a of an artist, which is I'm deeply insecure. And so, um, you know, the only thing that makes my life feel meaningful is the affirmation and validation of other people. And so what I'm really wanting is, you know, if I just dared to love my partner enough or if I, um, you know, allowed myself to feel this in other aspects of my life, then I wouldn't need that creative success or I wouldn't need that, you know, I wouldn't need that external thing to validate my existence. Um, That could be. But there's another part of therapy too, which is, believe me, I've been disabused of a lot of things in therapy. I mean, therapy has been almost this great uh, unlearning of my life. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the plot twist of therapy, you know, you sort of go into therapy and you're living, at least I'll talk about myself, but I went into therapy living with so many shoulds. I thought I was suffering because I wanted to do, all right, I've talked about this imagery before. I'm sorry, but it has to come up. It's just the most illustrative way I know how to talk about this, but there's a great documentary called touching the void. It's about a mountaineering accident and this guy's climbing with his friend. There's some sort of catastrophic incident. One of them breaks their leg, yada, yada, yada. They they need each other to get down to the bottom. Yet another catastrophic incident happens where one of them is hanging over the edge of this cliff, hanging by a rope that's attached to the other person. In order for the other person to save themselves, they cut the rope. That person falls very far (laughs) into a crevice, and they basically land on this ledge. And I think the, you know, the hole that they fell through is about a hundred feet above them. And as they're laying there, they see this hole and they have a broken leg and below, below them is just darkness. And they think, oh, if I could just get up to that hole, that's the way out. Um, Because below me is just darkness. And so most of us live our lives or at least, again, I'll talk about myself. I was living in misery because I thought, oh man, I'm looking above. I see the circle of light. That is what good living is. You know, I feel this deficit. I feel this, uh, I'm working at a negative. I'm below zero right now, right? And and to get back to life, to get back to feeling good, I need to get to that place to save myself, you know, to continue the mountaineering accent or, or uh, analogy, I need to get to that hole to save myself, <laughs> As I've gone through therapy, (laughs) I feel like it's been working through what the the Mountaineer had to work through, which is I can't get up there. That's just the truth. I I can't get up there. So the only chance I have actually of rescuing myself is going into the darkness and hoping that there is a way out. (laughs) And that's been my life. And the only caveat I would add is that I want to go into the darkness. There's a part of me that's that's like whispering like, "Hey man, you you kind of need to check what check out what's over here. This is kind of where you want to go, but I'm going, "Oh, but the but the but the light. The light up there, I got to climb up this, but I no matter how many times I try to climb up there, I just slide down." And so I feel like that's the drama that I'm engaged in is like I need to go to therapy and I need to work on myself so that I can this leg can get fixed and I can hike up this hundred feet, scale this wall to that little sliver of light. And that'll be, that'll be my safety. But the plot twist of therapy is like, you don't, (laughs) you know, maybe this is where it's not a one-to-one analogy. Sorry. You're at where you're at for a reason. And the reason you can't make it up there is actually the, is, you know, you're not, it's not who you're meant to be. You know, you need to check out in the darkness because that's actually, that's actually the way out. It's actually daring to sort of have the courage to poke around in the darkness. Um, <laughs> that's where you'll find your way out. Because the other part of that is, you know, if we're just fast forwarding through the mountaineering analogy, the, the guy saved himself. <laughs> he lived. He went down in the darkness, found a way out, and it wasn't easy, but he lived. Um, who knows what, what he would have found if he actually got out of the hole? You know, maybe he could have worked his whole life, gotten up to that thing or whatever, gotten up to the hole, and then what happens? Maybe it's a more treacherous way. Maybe he would have been stuck up there. You know, maybe going through that cavernous darkness or whatever, he circumvented what was actually unpassable if he had actually made it through that hole. So, where are we going with all this? As I feel forward in my life, in the darkness. And all I have is my sense of like what feels right. you know. Uh, and believe me, I have thought my compass is broken at many times in my life. But there are times where I feel called to do something that it doesn't make a lot of practical sense. But in my own heart, in my own gut, in my own sense of things... I feel this wind at my back and this voice saying like, yes, 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 come forward. This is the way forward. This is the way forward. And, um, it feels silly at the time. And it's the type of thing, I mean, I, it's, it's like everything in my life has felt this way. I spent a year and a half (laughs) when I was like doing music full time, not working at restaurants, And yes, I admit I was like drinking at the time and I was like smoking weed every day, but I would like go to bars and like just talk to people every day. We've talked about this and that's nuts. Like that's not a productive, quote, productive way to spend your time. But I knew I needed that. I knew that if I was going to be the type of person I wanted to be in life, I needed to work through something there was there was a social slash confidence slash whatever impediment in my person that I needed to work through and even though it didn 't make sense to anybody else, even if i couldn 't have justified it in a court of law, i know I, I I know that I needed that and I remember announcing in therapy that I will meet someone you know i can 't say it'll be the person I spend my life with, but the, i am I will have something to show for all of this. I fucking promise you. And uh, I believe it was meeting my girlfriend, who I've been with for the last five years. You know, I don't know what our future will be, but I just mean that has been one of the most formative chapters in my entire life. And I, I honestly believe it would not have happened if it wasn't for this period that I spent that would have looked to anybody else like a complete waste of time. Because I needed to have all those experiences, and there were fucking plenty of them where I went to bars and tried to talk to people and looked like a fucking jackass, or sometimes I even, quote, succeeded and met someone and made some type of connection that I kind of regretted afterwards. But that was honing the machinery and making those mistakes or whatever it was. And yeah, it looked like boozing and drinking and being kind of fucking bar rat for a while. And it was that. Don't get me wrong. It was also something that had to end eventually. But it was also very meaningful and formative. And I remember you know, I was building up this practice of like learning how to talk to people. And I remember when I met my girlfriend standing at a bar, if I had to qualify, it was actually a bar restaurant. So it wasn't like some seedy bar. It was a classy place, the type where you meet a classy person like my girlfriend. Um, and I remember seeing her and thinking, talk to her now before you don't. And I did. And if I had not had those experiences beforehand, I wouldn't have done it. If I had met her five years before that, I would have just looked at her and said, oh, that girl's cute. I wish I had the courage to talk to her and just gone, gone on with my life. You know, I remember a girl I dated before, before her. Um, I remember one of the last memories I have of her. I'm, again, I'm sorry if I'm being redundant and I've talked about this before. I remember house-sitting uh, for uh, a great guy. Uh, I don't know why I want to say his name. He's a, he's a good patron of the arts locally. He, um, architect has a nice home. He was heading out of town. He wanted me to house it for him. And I was dating someone at the time. And I said, I'd really like my girlfriend to be able to stay with me. Is that okay? And he was like, sure. So we're kind of in the guest house that I was sort of staying at beautiful home. And I remember we were watching this like nature program and it had this segment on the African Sengi. And now that I'm saying this, I feel like I have talked about it, but as we were watching this, it, you know, the African Sengi, which I, I forget, it's, is it a mole rat or a muskrat? Or I can't remember. The Sengi is like actually a colloquial name or a local name. It's not, I don't know what you call it formally, but it's. A, they, they call it the African Sengi, S-E-N-G-I. And what the Sengi does is it's this little rat that goes all day just sort of creating these like little trails for itself and cleaning them and, and, and just sort of brushing the detritus out of these little trails so that when it's time to go, when he like scurries across these things, they're clear. Meaning, excuse me, sorry, I'm burping. Meaning, he can evade predators, whatever it is. He has this intricate system of pathways that is that he's created for himself. And in some ways, I feel, like I saw that and said, "Oh, that's me. It me, right?" As the as the kids say, "It me. I'm a sangi, right?" Um. That's how I feel. I spend so much of my time just kind of like cleaning the pathway and maybe other people are like, what are you doing? I go, just watch. I'm going to, I'm going to sprint across this pretty soon. It's going to save my life. So it feels weird. Maybe where does all this lead to? I don't know. I'm talking about creative stuff. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about Jesus and (laughs) religion or whatever. Um, I'm talking about two things. I, I think I've lived my life for a lot of it, telling myself that my compass is broken. But when I actually look in hindsight, I haven't made too many decisions that I regret. And I don't mean that whole cliche, like you hear this from people who they're actually, their lives are like a dumpster fire. And, uh, I know I'm, I'm supposed to hate that phrase, but it's the first thing that came to mind. I can't be perfect all the time, but you know, I feel like that's something that dumb people say, like, I don't regret anything, you know, it led me here and yada, yada, yada. But maybe there's a lot of truth to that, unfortunately. I think the real challenge, ooh, I think the real challenge is knowing what my journey has been. Can I turn around and actually accept that of other people? You know, I think about myself as a parent, if I ever am one, and at this point, I don't think I will be. But if I'm ever a parent, can I tolerate and truly love my child and give them the space to have the exact same journey that I did. Because I think that's actually where as parents, and probably as people, we actually do the most harm, is we know exactly what it took for us to get where we are, but we have so much guilt. We blame ourselves so much for the, quote, mistakes that we made, and what we want more than anything, is for our children to be spared those experiences. That when we see them making the same mistakes or going down the same path, we want to save them from it. And in some ways we, you know, we chastise them, but really we're chastising our, our, ourselves through them. And when they don't understand, we say, oh, it's for your own good. Don't you understand? Because we think by chastising them, that is what we have that's demonstrative to show that we actually learned our lesson. Hey, I've gone through that experience. I've seen the mistakes I made, and I'm trying to help other people from making the same mistakes. Now, if that's arson, right, or armed robbery, yeah, we don't want people making the same mistakes. But if it's the regular rough and tumble of life, and like the relationship mistakes, and the financial mistakes, or the whatever it is, the sort of, um, you know, average sort of formative experiences that we have that we all go through. I mean, we can't save people from making those mistakes. You know, I think we all have this, we all live with this, like, idea of our, this idealized version of ourselves that we think we're living alongside. You know, there's our potential, you know, there's our living experience, and then there's, like, this idealized potentiality of ourselves that we're sort of racing to keep up with, and we just think, oh, if I, if I didn't have the stumbling blocks, if I didn't have the, there's this perfect life I could be leaving adjacent to the one I'm actually forced to live with because of my mistakes, because of the poor decisions I made. And I don't want to take that away from people. Like, there, like, there's a great line in Magnolia, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, where um, the old lead who's sort of dying, he's in hospice at home. And he says, like, you know, people say don't regret anything. Fuck that. You regret everything. (laughs) You know? There's so much regret. Ugh. And in some ways, that speaks to me. That makes a lot of sense. Um, But I I guess I'm also trying to say I think we torture ourselves senselessly with this idealized version of ourselves. It doesn't even exist. It's just in our own mind. Like, everybody's human. Nobody's perfect. Even people who you think are perfect are deeply flawed. You know, their lives are not what they pretend to be. It can't be. Everybody's disappointing. Even Mahatma Gandhi is disappointing if you look closely enough. I think we talked about it on this podcast. Him, uh, you know, laying in bed with like underage girls, young girls to keep him warm. Uh, yeah. Look that up. Google that. It's true. I remember reading about that and being like, what? Yeah, Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, believe me, the actual Jesus, if he did exist, if Jesus was actually a historical person, was not the Jesus that we read about. I mean, you want to talk about a whole nother thing we could go down. You know, people live, history closes around them, and they become fictionalized. It's true of everyone. Everyone. Anyone we admire has skeletons in their closet. Just is the case. Presidents. (sighs) Comedians. (laughs) Podcast hosts. Some are worse than others, that's for sure. But we all have things we don't want people to know about us. That are a challenge to the image we're sort of presenting to the world. So what's one for me? Well, in some ways, we talked about some of them. I remember one of the earliest stories that I told that was kind of vulnerable for me that actually someone came up to me and talked to me about. Someone I was very embarrassed, somebody that I work with who happened to be listening to the podcast without my knowledge, came up and and said that that story actually was really moving for them. But it was the story about my mother's makeup. You know, when I had my face scratched up for what felt like months of my childhood, it was probably just a a matter of weeks, but I had stolen my mother's makeup and like had these like scratches on my face because I was so mortified about them. And, um... You know, that was very, I was, you know, deeply shamed for that by my mother, by other members of my family. That was something I was ashamed of for a long time that now I look back on and I go, that's normal. But those are things that we don't want people to know about, you know, that we think they're, because of the way they were framed for us, we're sort of ashamed about. And I think where I'm going with this is I think that there are things about our lives that we feel shame about that actually are not shameful, I think there are plenty of things that people, I, you know, in some ways I want some people to be more ashamed. (laughs) I want, you know, I want people to feel more judgment. I think some people in some ways that maybe in our current culture, we're a little too, you know, I think in some ways we can be too accommodating of certain behaviors, but, um, ah, to bring it back to therapy. I think this is where I was really going with this whole thing. And it goes back to the Bible and it goes to this, this um, disconnect where people see, read the Bible and they see them, themselves as Jesus and not the Pharisees, which is a lot of times the things that we experience as virtues that guide our lives, that guide many of our decisions that we think are good, that we think are practical, we are actually in league with the devil. <laughs> and I don't mean the actual devil, but I mean, I'm talking about the allegory of religion, The hard way, the good way, it's not, in, it's not always intuitive. It's not what you are celebrated for by society. It is often the thing that looks confusing. Or that seems crazy. But that's really where the value is. Because, you know, popular opinion is usually wrong. There's a type of contrarianism that is, that is especially these days, there is a, there is a certain type of contrarianism that is also its own kind of mindless um, popular opinion as well. I mean, for some reason, when I think about the Bible or the Pharisees or or the people who persecuted Jesus, I also think about the play Coriolanus, which I've talked about, which I think is a vastly underrated play by Shakespeare. I don't think it's perfect. I think it's uneven. But in some ways, I think the core idea actually might be one of the strongest in his output. You know, Coriolanus is not as strong a lead as like Hamlet or King Lear, but there's, there's an idea in Coriolanus that I think is one of the most penetrating in Shakespeare's entire catalog, which is the way that popular opinion is controlled by politicians and how fickle public opinion is and the things that they celebrate is not always aligned with virtue. I mean, to me, the tragedy of Coriolanus is that he's trying to be modest, but popular opinion patriotism, you know, whatever it is, because he doesn't cow to that, he's sort of ostracized from the culture. Now, he does bad things as a result of that, right? In a way... And I haven't really thought about this, so I may take this back at some point. But in some ways, you know, the type of of contrarianism I'm talking about, that sort of, you know, to me, it's the alt-right type thing, or this, you know, I think what people perceive as the intellectual dark web. I don't think Jordan Peterson is an awful guy. I think he actually says a lot of really intelligent things. I don't think he's awesome. I don't hitch my star to his what is it I don't hitch my carriage to his star whatever the fucking saying is I don't I don't don't, I'm not hitched to his worldview I think he has said a lot of things that I vehemently disagree with as well but generally a smart guy Sam Harris I deeply respect I don't know how these people became figureheads of the alt-right but I also know that many of the people who follow them are people I want nothing to do with a lot of the whole QAnon bullshit um you know, it is this knee-jerk reaction to the sort of PC culture, which is a type of, you know, again, there's great stuff there, but it has, you know, uh, uh, been blown into a, a kind of mindlessness of its own and a kind of a silliness. But, um, in some ways Coriolanus, who starts off being a virtuous person because he's so disgusted with popular culture, he becomes a kind of monstrosity himself, almost like I don't know if he's the QAnon equivalent, but he basically goes over to the dark side. He hates, he hates public opinion. He hates the way that the public has treated him so much that he sort of errs on the other side and becomes kind of a, a villain in his own right. But the point is, is Coriolanus is a strong play because it talks about, you know, pu- most people don't know what they're doing. They're just following the sway of public opinion and they end up crucifying otherwise important people, people that they actually should be emulating. you know, Coriolanus, even though he become, you know, he's human, you know, he's not portrayed the way Jesus is in the Gospels, but there's something in the way that, you know, the first two, three acts of that play that are kind of like analogous to the Gospels when I think about it. Maybe if I actually reread it, I, I, uh, that might change. Actually, as I'm thinking about it, the last time I read Coriolanus, you know, there was this period in my life where I was very close with the people at Patreon, with Jack Conte and all those guys, and, um, I remember, uh, Patreon reached out to me and said, Hey, we want you to be like, we want to take you to this festival in Portland and play music with some other artists. And I was like, cool. And at first I'm sort of embarrassed. Cause I was like, well, it doesn't really sound like something that you pay me for. And they said, Oh yeah, we will. They paid me a, f- a significant amount of money and flew me out there and put me up at a hotel. They did that for all of us. And I remember, uh, I can't remember why I had to get back so quickly But when we flew back, it was me, Jack Conti, and somebody else flying back together. We were on the same flight. So we, you know, we got a ride to the airport together. And when we're on the airplane, (laughs) I'm sitting on the aisle seat and Jack Conti, there's like an aisle and Jack Conti's like right on my left. And I say this uh, endearingly, I don't say this to give the guy a hard time, but at the time Jack Conti was terrified of flying and he was, it was something he was actively working on. I mean, part of being the CEO of Patreon is he had to fly around. And he had to do a lot of traveling. And I think it was something he'd, a fear he'd always lived with that he was uh, working through at the time. And God bless him. I mean, that's exactly the type of thing that Jack Conti would do, right? Uh, he identifies a challenge and he fucking chops away at it. So I'm sure he, I'm sure he's very comfortable. But I remember on the plane, I was reading Coriolanus and he was like sitting on my right. And as we were coming in for the landing, the flight was like really turbulent. And I'm sort of reading with my book in front of my face and Jack Conti's like sitting to my right and I can see him kind of like gripping the armchairs. And part of me trying to make him comfortable, I think, is not acknowledging the discomfort that I see he's clearly feeling. But when we land, he comments to me, he's like, how did you just read your book? And I was like, oh, it didn't, you know, it didn't really bother me. But that was always an endearing thing for me to have that insight into somebody, you know, who I admire and who I think is great and who I think is brilliant. And, uh, you know, you kind of want to be actually, when you think about it, you actually want to emulate this person it was this, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you, you always kind of feel flattered when you have this little, you know, if, if nothing else, and believe me, there's nothing else. But if I had anything on Jack Conti, it's my comfort, um, reading Cori- Coriolanus while there's a turbulent flight taking place. Right. So I'll take that to my grave. So take that Jack Conti. I'm comfortable on planes. You can take your million dollars in Patreon and all that sort of nonsense. But anyway, Uh, yeah, I think that was just a name-dropping story, honestly. All right, so what's the sum of all this? I don't know, man. Well, maybe there's nothing, uh, I don't know, maybe there's no way to summarize all that. Except sometimes I think that to do the right thing, it, it takes a certain type of courage. I'm not saying it takes, uh, I'm not saying you're a hero, but it takes a certain type of courage. And sometimes the courage that we muster for ourselves is kind of to do something that we don't actually want. You know, I, I think I was thinking about that idea of like, careful what you wish for. So, so many of us work our whole lives for the should, the thing I should do, the thing I should accomplish, the thing I should want. And then we get it and we look up and we're not fulfilled. And we look back on our lives and think, if I had just given myself permission to do the thing, if I had just given myself permission to do the thing, I'd be happy. There's a very deep moment that I have thought about in my life that I've had to (laughs) think about. It doesn't really make sense. It's this minor moment at the end of, Willie Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, whatever the one—not the Johnny Depp version, the Gene Wilder version—at the very end, in the glass elevator, is the glass elevator is flying over the town. Willie Wonka looks at Charlie and says, "Did you hear the one? Do you ever hear about the boy who got everything he ever wanted?" He says, "No." He says, "He lived happily ever after." And it just kind of happens. But think about that. There's a lot of important words there. Well, to me, the, the, it's wanted. Not did you hear this, Did you hear the one about the boy who did everything he should? It's did you hear about the boy who got everything he ever wanted? He lived happily ever after. He lived. Happily. Ever after. Let's all think about that this week. (laughs) If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can. On Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. So take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Actually, I don't give a fuck what you do anymore. I've stopped reading the reviews. If you don't like the podcast and you want to spend your time writing about it, that's great. You know, at the end of the day, if you listen to this podcast and spit at your computer screen the entire time, that's okay. The numbers still look the same to me. So do whatever you want. But if you'd like to leave a positive uh, positive review, that does influence uh, people listening and growing the audience is never a bad thing. Whether people enjoy it or not, having more ears on this can't be a bad thing. So if you'd like to leave a positive review, please do. Uh, and if you can think of someone in your life you think would like the show send them your favorite episode uh if you'd like to watch the video podcast you can at thisismpod.com that's thisismpod.com you'll see the latest episode at the top of the queue you can watch the video there or click through to youtube subscribe to the podcast and hell you can leave us a comment there too if you want right now we're at the phase where nobody's really watching the videos so i don't know how the i don't know how the the algorithm or the the bots do this but you get these sort of like uh spam comments, you know? Anyway. So anyway, if you want to watch the podcast via video form, you can. Otherwise, this has been kind of a interesting episode. I hope there's uh, something here for you to take with you, and something to think about until we meet again. So until next week, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao. For now.